go. So, welcome to the Stop and Think podcast. I'm your host, Will Dole. Thanks for listening. I have with me today a guest. Paul Granger does community-based ministry in Richmond, Virginia. He's been in ministry for about 20 years, and he is the husband of Becca and the wife of three children, and he is our first guest here on the podcast. So welcome to the Stop and Think podcast, Paul. Hey, I'm glad to be here. So uh, before we get rolling, why don't you just tell me uh, some of your own story? Like, how, how did you come to faith in Christ? How did you end up, I mean, you've been in ministry for a long time. How did you end up getting called to ministry? Kind of what's the backstory there? Yeah. Well, you know, there's a long time where, I really struggle with this idea of testimony because I didn't feel like I had a good one. You mm. know, the, the good ones are the ones where it's somebody who was living a life of sin and then suddenly God confronted them and their lives utterly transformed. But I always went to church. You know, I baptized as an infant and always remembered going to, you know, I was at a Presbyterian church for a while, Nazarene church for a while, but I was at always a part of a church, always part of ministries. But, you know, for me, it was in middle school, going into high school, when I really started to say, well, what does this actually mean for me? Like, what does it actually mean for me to say that I'm a Christian? What does it actually mean for me to say that I believe in God? Because up until that point, it was just what you did. I, my family went to church. People around me went to church. But I realized, man, if this is something, <laughs> if this is something meaningful, then it probably needs to mean something for my life. Right. What And what does that mean? How does that change how I live and how I think. And, you know, that was the start of God shifting my understanding of what life was all about. And by high school, what that meant is as everyone else is thinking about what they're going to do with their lives, what are they going to be? Are they going to be a doctor or a lawyer? I just had this clear sense that I was going to do ministry. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't have much experience around that. But I just had this sense that whatever I do, I want it to be in service to God. Now, at the time, my main understanding of what that could be was a pastor. Like that, that was the top tier, and then everything else was just side. And when I got into college, God began to confront that in me because in my mind, a pastor was someone who is behind the pulpit, runs a church, and I realized I don't know that that's what God's calling me to. I feel like God's invited me to walk alongside people. That's something that's always naturally and organically happened, but I don't know what that means. I don't know where or how you do that. And so really, ultimately, the the answer to that question of how I got into ministry is I had no idea what to do. So I asked God, hmm. I was like, all right, God, I'm about to graduate from college. I, I'm going to have a degree in Christian ministries, but I have no idea what to do. So what you got for me? And over the course of several times going to prayer, I felt like God was first saying uh, to not go overseas, to, to stay in the States. Second, I felt like God was inviting me to serve in the urban context. I grew up in the country, so hmm. that wasn't on my radar, nor did I know what that even really meant. And then third, I felt like God was inviting me to serve youth. And so I was like, all right, so I guess I'm doing urban youth ministry in the States. <laughs> cool. How do I do that? Right, <laughs> and right. You know, and this is the beauty of God is, you know, a lot of times he'll give us an invitation before we actually know what that invitation means, before we actually know how to even walk towards that invitation. And so really, instead of us doing it, the, the first step is for us to just take a step towards him. And so that's what I did. And what he did is he opened up this opportunity to serve alongside an amazing organization called Urban Promise Wilmington. 
And I went in thinking I'd just be there for a summer, ended up staying for two years. And so much of what I experienced there has shaped who I am today. Um, but, but that was it. It planted this seed for what it looked like to do community-based ministry. And when I say community-based ministry, I don't mean working for a ministry or working for a nonprofit because what I came to learn is that we can have a lifestyle of loving our neighbors. Mm-hmm. Um, we default to not doing that more often than not, right? Yeah. Our default is our home is our sanctuary. So you do all the outside stuff, all the work stuff, all the ministry stuff outside of the home. And then once you get home, that's you time. And there is a place for self-care. There is a place for relaxing. But if that is the bulk of our time at home, then we might be missing an opportunity to love our neighbors. But what God had taught me through my time at Urban Promise is, you know, you can choose to sit on the front porch instead of the back and get to know your neighbors in a beautiful way. You can be willing to answer the door when you were just sitting down to watch a movie and be able to get to know your neighbors in a beautiful way. And in that, uh, come to discover God in a beautiful way because, I mean, God's, if we're all made in the image of God, then that stands to reason that if we want to get to know God, then maybe we should pay more attention to all the different image bearers, right? (laughs) Because if you are made in the image of God and I'm made in the image of God and we're different, then there must be elements of this huge incomprehensible God that each of us embodies that the other can see when we actually connect. And so... For the last couple of decades, I've been trying to learn more and more what it means to love God and love others, both in the functional ways and in the organic ways, when I'm outside the home and when I'm in the home. And all along the way, I've learned to hold things loosely because, you know, at the end of the day, we can lose our jobs. But if our job is actually to be ambassadors of Christ, everything can be taken from us and we can still live into that. And that's how I want to operate, that the worst of situations can happen and I can still honor God by living into that role. Yeah, you're preaching to me. So you said you grew up, you're, you're in Richmond now, but you grew up in a country context. Like, was that in Virginia or was that another part of the country? Where'd you grow up? Yeah, so it was just two counties up from Richmond. So I was close to Richmond. I knew of Richmond, just barely interacted with it, mm. <laughs> barely touched it. Um, just because, you know, there was rarely any need to. We came for the circus back when that was a thing and <laughs> maybe a few other events, but most of our time was on 10 acres and running around in the woods and playing with chickens and putting them on my shoulder and walking around with them on my shoulder yeah, and a yeah. lot of very country-like things. Right. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I, I grew up in a rural area, and I, I mean, I'm still in a small town now, so that sounds familiar. I'm, I'm wondering, mm-hmm. as I'm listening to you talk about you know, that, that front, front porch mindset rather than a back porch mindset and, and living into community in that way. It's one of those things that sounds maybe a little easier when you're in an urban context Mm -hmm. and and people are stacked close together. So how do you see that? Obviously you grew up in, in the country. How do you see that playing out if, if folks are living? So I, I mean, that, that vision is, is, something i've thought a lot about i'm pretty influenced by rod Dreer's early writings uh his his book uh what was it called crunchy cons <laughs> and then mm. his his memoir about his sister the little way of ruthie lemming he talks a lot about those same ideas you know that he'd gone and lived in of course he was in the city but not living into that you know interacting with his neighbors and those around him 
and he wanted to find a place to live where he could actually sit on his front porch and talk to the neighbor across the street. Mm-hmm. But we live in a world, live in a country now where, you know, even if you're in suburbia or rural areas, like even if you were on your front porch, you'd have to be, you'd have to get a megaphone out. We, we right. live in these giant right. houses that are so far apart. So how, how would you see that playing out in a practical way? You know, if yeah. in a, we live in a built world that seems to push against that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's the thing that we got to start off naming is what is the culture in which we're kind of brought into? What are the expectations? What are the natural inclinations within us? Because, you know, it's interesting when I think back to my time living in a rural context, there was a different sense of neighboring at times in that it wouldn't be uncommon for people just to stop over. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that might be because if you've got acres between you, (laughs) you know, you begin to desire human connection. (laughs) So you might, or, or just the, the nature of lifestyle might be different. The busy, uh, the, the busy, the city tends to be more busy. Right. And so if it's go, 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 when you get home, you just want to rest, rest, rest. But one of the things that I love about when I go and visit my parents in the country is there's just this calmer lifestyle. You're not hearing sirens. You're not hearing cars. You're not hearing trains. You're not hearing all these things. It's just quiet. And so your context can shape some of how this looks. And you're right. You know, when you functionally have distance, the what is easy for me to sit on the porch and somebody walks by on the sidewalk is going to be harder for someone else. But if we start with that baseline of, well, what is the default response or default assumption? Am I defaulting to independence? Am I defaulting to disconnection? Am I defaulting to withdrawal? If we can name that, then we can begin to see how that's playing out in our lives. And then the second piece is, what is the culture that God's invited us to? And in scripture, we're called to love God and love others, right? Which for me represents that we're designed for relationship with God and relationship with others. In other words, we're not designed to just have these individualized relationships with God in a silo where we never connect with others. Throughout scripture, we see God bringing about connection. And there were instances where someone had to operate independently. Often the prophets had to operate in this space, but it was never a permanent thing. It might be for seasons, like when Elijah had to go and be on his own, But even in that, there were times where he was brought to the widow or, you know, brought to others that would serve as that community. And so we're designed to actually function in community. It's like I said earlier, that I cannot fully see and understand God unless I'm in relationship with others because I can see elements of God in you that I might not have recognized in myself. And so if we're designed for community, if that's the culture that God's inviting us to, then in order to really seek God in order to really know him and in order to really show love to him, we have to be willing to make efforts to step out and connect with the rest of those made in his image. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, really, if you've got those baselines, what is my default now and what invitation is God giving me? Then you just think about your context and go from there. So if you're in the city, like it is a pretty easy thing to choose to be If you're like me and you're on a main thoroughfare where there's a lot of foot traffic, then choose to be visible and accessible. But visibility and accessibility can exist wherever you are. So if you're in the the country, then you think, well, where is it that I could interact with people? Or how can I 
create a, a hospitable space where I am now? How can I invite people over? Um, and, you know, we're now getting into nicer weather. So, you know, how can you say, hey, so-and-so, you want to go take a walk at the park or or just go to the park and interact with people, right? So it's you got to think of your context. And it's sometimes going to be harder for some people and easier for others. But the invitation doesn't change that when Jesus invited the disciples to love their neighbors and, and told the story of the Good Samaritan, the Im- the implication of that is you could just be going down the road minding your own business and God brings about a neighbor to love. Yep. But if you don't have that preparation in your heart to acknowledge what your default is and what God's invitation is, you may respond like the first few guys and have some reason, sometimes a legitimate logical reason to avoid that interaction. Whereas the Samaritan, <laughs> for some reason, had this idea prepped in his mind to to love anyone he interacted with, and he stepped into action for something that he didn't see coming. So we can do that too. Yeah, I've always uh, been intrigued by Jesus' answer. I mean, the question that he's asked there is, who is my neighbor? You know, after He's mm-hmm. quoted, love your neighbor as yourself, and, and the ask who is my neighbor and, and essentially the point of the story is it doesn't answer the question <laughs> he <laughs> yeah. said the answer is be a neighbor and uh-huh. uh it he's just poking at our assumptions that oh if i figure out who my neighbor is then i find out who i'm obligated to and and jesus answer is actually you're obligated to everybody you interact with mm-hmm. um, i i wonder so you've got this this vision for uh, just kind of a life on life pouring pouring into people showing love to whoever you're interacting with then you said that was shaped uh, in large part by the your time with urban promise there but i wonder did you have any experiences in church growing up that that helped form that or that pushed against that that you've had to unlearn you know it's it's a good question because my the largest portion of my church experience growing up was actually at a very very small country church. Mm-hmm. When I say very small country church, I mean on a good Sunday, you had like twenty five people. Uh, sounds familiar. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> you know the the youth group for a lot of that time was my brother and I. At the height of the youth group, I think there was five of us, and we ranged probably four or five six years in age. Yeah, and so. You know, I think one thing that that did within me was I, I remember there being a longing for connection because I did feel um, I did feel not out of place. I can't think of the word that I want, but because there weren't a lot of youth my age, I, I longed for others that were in the similar space of life as me. And I ended up when I got into high school. I ended up connecting with this church that is uh, was Weston Church of the Nazarene, now is Connecting Point Church. And that was the first time I engaged with a church that actually had a lot of youth in it. <laughs> and I, I remember this excitement about being able to build relationships and being able to connect. Um, but of course, these periods are happening in, in spurts. So, you know, I've got the church of my youth and the church of high school, but then I go to college and I have a different environment there. I remember... When I was at the Christian University, one of the big things that I learned there was (laughs) I went to Campbell University, which maybe there's more stuff around there now, but uh, there was so little around Campbell that one of the first big 
community block party things that ever happened that I ever experienced there was because they got their first stoplight, right? Like, <laughs> you know, that, that kind of excitement. There is, it was a Christian campus. And so there was um, limitations on who could go into what dorms and at what times you could be in the dorms. And so if you had a group of friends that were both guys and girls, uh, there was very limited spaces in which you could hang out after 10 p.m. And so one of those spaces was the the new 24-hour Walmart. <laughs> Just go there because it's a building that's open after 10. Or Fran's Diner, which uh, oftentimes had like a C rating <laughs> and smelled thick of like cigarette smoke. and But it was open, and so we would go there and get uh, questionable meals. And <laughs> But I remember, you know, Years later, thinking of the ways that our friends continued to interact, ways that we loved doing game nights together and things like that. And I began to realize, well, part of it is because we didn't have anything but each other. Right. We we didn't have the capacity to go out and watch movies every weekend or anything like that because nothing was close. And so what did we do? We just found a space where we could be together and we just connected and we interacted. And And so, you know, I think, that's something that sits with me too is again, like whatever our default is, whatever our culture is, it could become the norm. And so if we're used to not connecting with others, if we're not used to connecting with people that are different than us, then it's very easy to continue to default like that. But when you're forced into a context where you have to operate differently, it can (laughs) create an opportunity to break free from that. And that's, I think why urban promise was so meaningful because that was my first experience living in a for a prolonged period of time in an urban context where there was a whole lot of people around, mm. where there was a whole lot of movement around. And demographically, you know, I'm a, a, a white male and that community was predominantly black. And I had never been in a context where I wasn't in the majority space. Right. And so that forced me to have to think through things and confront things within myself and challenge things and step back and learn things. And, and so, yeah, I think churches can serve that role, but it, it really depends on how the church itself is pressing into those deeper questions. What are the defaults that we're operating in? What is the default culture that we're operating in? And what's the culture that God's inviting us to as a congregation? Because if a congregation begins to live out that way of moving, then it's going to bring along whoever's in that congregation. It's going to challenge and inspire and equip them. And that's, I think, what we see in the Acts church is they were all used to engaging their religion in a certain way. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly Jesus threw this new thing and sent the helper. And suddenly now, (laughs) like, everything looks different. But somehow thousands of people were able to not just step into this new norm, and but thrive. And, you know, you get into... Acts 3, where it's talking about just the beautiful life that existed for them, that they shared all things in common, they fellowshiped together, that there is nobody in need. It's not because these people were naturally really good at all this, or that they had been doing it all their lives. Most of them had never experienced something like this. But because as a community, they were willing to step into this new invitation, then God equipped them to be able to experience what a taste of what full life actually could look like. Yeah, that, that's helpful. I do wonder, so, I mean, obviously the, the biblical picture you're painting there is spot on, and then you're describing experiences at college and then with, with Urban Promise that were, what, 20-some years ago. Mm-hmm. And 
all of that's before the smartphone. Yeah. <laughs> and so how how have you just in your experience felt that shift? I, I when I'm interacting with folks, especially younger, I sometimes wonder do they even know how to interact? You know, <laughs> because everything's been disembodied and they've had smartphones in their hands since the time they could walk basically. And mm-hmm. there there's I sometimes wonder if if part of what churches need in their pursuit of making disciples is to simply teach people how to like interact as human beings. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing I think about that is because, yeah, it has been this growing and recurring conversation over the last couple of decades. And because I, yeah, I knew a life before that, it could be very easy to find myself in the congregation, in the conversations that uh, are very, have a lot of red flags and understandably so. I mean, there's been studies that have been done about the risks of screens and the risks of social media. There's definitely dangers. But one thing I think about often is that we've got to be careful with broad sweeps, right? Because Mm -hmm. here's what we're seeing in this. At the very core, if we were designed for community, then it would make sense that there could be this natural draw for connection within us. And when we're not stifling that for whatever reason, which we can, we can stifle that for a lot of reasons, but when we're not doing that, we're going to, we're going to reach out in whatever context or without whatever resources we have. And in the case of folks born within the last couple of decades, that's via smart devices. And, and here's the, the crazy thing is, is that there is actually some unique potential for connection that exists there that doesn't exist in many other places. This is what it makes me think of. You know, I serve alongside Youth with a Mission, and Youth with a Mission does a lot of equipping and training for folks who are ready to give their lives to serving God and to go out wherever God sends them. And one of their deep, deep values is in-person relationship, connection, teaching, training. Like That is a core value, that we are doing this together. And so there could be a natural resistance to virtual stuff. And it was hard for a lot of YWAM folks when the pandemic hit and a lot of classes had to be either closed down or moved to virtual. And for some people, uh, there was a resistance because this like in-person is how it's supposed to be. And so we need to get away from virtual as soon as possible. But I actually found some really interesting things in that space. One of the things that was interesting for the location I'm with here in Virginia is that God years, years ago had placed it in um, this guy named Chris's heart and he was leading the locations, placed it within his heart to step into this space of broadcasting of virtual of like zoom of all these things. He didn't exactly know why or when or how or what, but he just had this sense that God was giving this invitation. And so when the pandemic hit and Everybody was scrambling to figure out, wait, how do we how do we do virtual stuff? God had already placed a lot of tools within Chris's hands that he's like, well, I guess now's the time and this is the reason. And we were able to run forward. And I remember a year ago there we would we used to do these. Uh, well, we still do, but we had these weekly Bible studies and it became tricky, you know, when the pandemic first started. But a year ago, uh, we were able to start meeting in person again, but 
there were times where I wasn't able to for various reasons, and I ended up having to be the facilitator, and then people started getting COVID, and so other people couldn't meet. And instead of canceling, I'm like, look, we've already got this technology. <laughs> like, Let's meet on Zoom. Right. And it could be very easy for someone to be resistant because it is a lesser way of connecting to do Bible study because it's not in person. But what I realized is actually there are people showing up that wouldn't have otherwise, either because they were busy or because they were sick. Or we had some guys from other countries pop in. Right, We were able to connect from a broader um, you know, reach. And I find the same thing with the podcast that I do is – for a long time, I was just doing in person because that's what I knew. I didn't even know really how to record virtually. But then when I had to record virtually, I shifted to that. And I have connected with people all over the world. I've connected with people that would not have wanted to meet in person. I've connected with people whose stories I would never have known. And so I think at the end of the day, what we have to do is it comes back to those same core questions. When we think about social media and smartphones, what is our default? Like, what are the expectations? What is it that the culture that's placed before us? And let's be honest about that, the pros and the cons. But then what's the invitation? Because I don't think the invitation from God is destroy all smartphones. Right. right? Yeah, that's not, um, not going to happen. Right, right. That's not going to happen. And if that's, if that's our gut response is, oh, these are bad, then I think we're going to miss an opportunity. But even like I, I, I keep thinking of the Apostle Paul when he was at Athens. And there are all these philosophical thinkers, and they're, they're talking through their theology amidst all these statues to all these gods. And there could have been a gut reaction from other god followers when they saw those statues to immediately say, I'm wiping the dust off my feet. I'm not stepping foot into this place. Right? But the Apostle Paul knew that even though he did not believe that there were a bunch of these gods that should have statues— he knew that God invited him into that space, and so he went into that invitation and was able to represent God well and talk about, oh, I see you've got this statue to the unknown God. Well, let me tell you, I know this God, right? And so I think that there are some amazing things that God can do through this technology, but are we willing to be honest with ourselves about what's ahead of us and then honest about the invitation and then are we willing to step into that invitation? Mm-hmm. I've got another question for you, but it'd probably take us over a half hour. Do you have a little bit more time? I've got all the time you need, okay. hypothetically. hypothetically. Not all the time. Well, yeah. <laughs> Let's not do an eight-hour <laughs> one. <laughs> my kids will probably start screaming in the background if we do that. Uh, <laughs> so you, you brought up your podcast here, and it's not lost on me that I asked that anti-smartphone-sounding question on, <laughs> on a podcast <laughs> that people are listening yeah. to on their smartphones. Right. So, yeah. But – but you mentioned in that in that blog post that you wrote a while back on the Great Commission, you were talking about your podcast and, and the value of storytelling. So what do you see as the connection between storytelling and the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations? Yeah. You know, growing up, the the what I how I understood the Great Commission was that we all had a responsibility to go out and evangelize to people or to convert people or to have this well-crafted statement that we make that will convince somebody to believe in Jesus. And there was a lot of pressure behind that because I, I didn't know what that statement was supposed to be. And I, you know, I'm in 
naturally an introvert. <laughs> and so I hate small talk and things like that. So just going up to some random person like does not feel natural or comfortable. I didn't have this natural drive. And so for a long time, I really wrestled with how to live out the Great Commission, right? And the, this is what the passage says. It's Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so I, I felt a lot of conviction because, man, this is Jesus's last big invitation and I don't feel like I'm doing it. I'm, you know, in high school, I'm like, oh, I haven't talked to any of my peers in college. I'm like, man, well, I'm not even going out to, to try to talk to people who aren't Christian. I'm, man, what's wrong with me? And, and over time, as I've pressed into this passage more, and as I've tried to seek God more, and I've seen what God has brought about, I've been challenged by certain elements of it. You know, one of the big elements that I was challenged with was this idea of making disciples and what that means. Because it isn't go therefore and change people. It's make disciples. Well, how did Jesus make disciples? Well, he walked alongside people. He lived authentically into his relationship with his father, and then others could watch and follow along with that. He did teach. He did give encouragement. But there is something uniquely organic about the way that Jesus lived this out and patient, right? There was a lot of times that Jesus would convey something that would just go right over the disciples' heads. And Jesus didn't write them off at that moment. Jesus didn't get mad because they didn't immediately change and transform because he knew that it was a journey that they were on. And so, you know, I, I found a little bit of peace in that, but it, it's really been through this podcast that I've been doing that I've been able to see it played out in a beautiful, beautiful way. And one of the specific examples I think of is I did this healing series. This is last season. And this was not a series I wanted to do or chose to do, but I felt like God was inviting me to do it. I wanted to do one episode on healing, one episode. And I felt like I was saying, but what if I ask you to do a whole season? And instead of one, it ended up being 51 episodes. Oh, that's and, a little bit of a difference. <laughs> yeah. And it was simultaneously amazing and also exhausting. <laughs> but I mean, so many stories, so many stories of how God's been at work and not in your default, oh, miraculous recoveries, but sometimes the healing didn't happen in the way the person wanted. Sometimes the person was still wrestling with the thing that they wanted God to heal, right? And yet somehow they still knew that God was God and God was good. And I was closing up the series and I was praying through, well, what verse should I use to wrap all this up? And the Great Commission came in my head. And I'm like, that makes no sense. <laughs> like, I, I'm supposed to find a passage about healing or something like that, not the Great Commission. That seems like your default one if you're like, oh, man, I have to preach. Oh, I'll just do the Great Commission, right? Like, but it just it was very strongly in my mind. And so I read through it. And then I realized, man, this is incredibly applicable because in verse 19, it says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Well, here I am talking with these people who are all over the world and then putting it in audio form and sending it out all over the world. I mean, these podcasts hypothetically are going to all nations. And then you've got guests like the one that keeps on coming up is Darcy Steiner. She was the second episode of the healing series. 
powerful story. She had had something happen that incredibly diminished her mobility. Um, they prayed and God healed her. And then 20 years later, it was reignited. And then God didn't heal her that time. And yet she is in a position now where she's like, as much as I would love to be able to walk like I used to, I'm grateful for the suffering because that's where I've grown closest to God, right? Like mind-blowing understanding of how life works and what full life is and what abundantly more is. Well, she shares this story because she feels like God's invited her to share that. She is basically discipling because she's talking about who God is and how she now operates in such a way to seek him. And then without her knowing it, someone named Melinda ends up listening. And Melinda has her own just slew of health things that just are making life incredibly hard. And she is now encouraged and inspired by Darcy's story. So she leaves me a voicemail. I put it on the finale. And then Melinda reaches out and she's like, I feel like God's inviting me to share my story. And she didn't necessarily want to. <laughs> she wasn't necessarily comfortable with it. But she had actually gotten to connect with Darcy after that interaction. Um, and Darcy encouraged her. And so I'm going to be releasing an episode from her pretty soon. And I am confident that somebody is going to hear her story and be encouraged in what it means to trust God, to seek God, to follow God. And those people could be from any nation in the world, right? And so it's not like Darcy or Melinda are these super Christians or are these profound spiritual theologian leaders or anything like that. They're, they're everyday people who are trying to figure out what this life is all about and are trying to seek God in the midst and are willing to then share that with others, to connect with others. And this is the simplicity of the Great Commission is we can be stifled in it because we don't feel like we're spiritual enough. We don't feel like we're smart enough. We don't feel like our story is good enough. We don't feel like we've got the right words. Like, I mean, I could keep going, right? We come up with all these reasons. But sometimes what God has given us is enough. If it's simply just our story, even if it's an unfinished story, right? Sometimes we don't want to tell our stories because it's like, oh, it's not done yet. I'm still wrestling through it. Well, sometimes it's in the wrestling that somebody could be most inspired because maybe they're wrestling through it too. Maybe they don't need the person who's at the finish line that feels like it's too far for them. Maybe they're going to be encouraged because there's someone else that's asking the same questions. And so, you know, if we are in relationship with God, if we have come to decide that we want to follow Jesus, then we are fully equipped right now as we are to live into this invitation of the Great Commission. But instead of stressing over how to do it, we have the opportunity to trust that God can equip us. And, and again, this is the beautiful part. The very end, it says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We don't have to do it by ourselves. We're not meant to do it by ourselves. Jesus said, I'm going to send the helper and you're going to do even greater things than I did. And then he sends the helper. And in Acts, you see this group of people that at one point were just common fishermen now doing these miraculous things. Miraculous things that they know aren't them, but our God, are the work of the Spirit through them. And so... Our stories have the power to do abundantly more than we could ask or imagine. But it's not about us crafting the right words or making them sound extra engaging. No, it's, it's about humbly giving those to God and then seeing what he can do with those stories and then sharing them where he invites us to share. Yeah, I, that, I mean, that brings to mind in, in Acts there where the disciples are speaking 
and the people can tell that these are unschooled, untrained men, right. but they can tell they've been with Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I, I think of John chapter 4, you know, Jesus talks to the woman at the well, and her evangelism tactic when she runs back into town is, come see a man who told me all I ever did. You know, yeah. <laughs> this woman, woman whose life is full of sin. And, yeah, and, and who up. who is being avoided by all the people? I mean, right. she's at the well because no one wanted to interact with her. She would seem she would believe that she's the least likely to impact a whole city, but that whole city exactly. came to know who Jesus was. Right. And I was actually just talking with this the gal in our church uh, not too long ago. Like we have a, a testimony time that you know, once or twice, once every month or two, we have somebody get up and share their testimony during the service. And and as she was preparing it, and said, you know. We're sharing our story, but fundamentally, a testimony is not—it's not actually about us. It's about what mm-hmm. God's doing, what He has done in our lives. And and as I'm listening to you talk, I'm just thinking, uh, just took some training through Youth for Christ, so they do three-story training. You know, you're you're, ter- mm-hmm. you're you're listening to somebody else's story, and you're telling them your story. And and as you're doing that, and you're connecting with them on a human level, that's when the opportunities to share God's story, what He's done in in your life, and and in his son, Jesus Christ, in, in making atonement for our sins, like, that's when those opportunities come up. You know, it's it's like you said, it's not a, a perfectly crafted four-step mm-hmm. evangelism presentation. It, yeah. It's usually just sharing, here's who saved me, and, and mm-hmm. he'll save you too. Yeah. So, as we kind of wrap up here, what, what would be a resource, whether it's a, a book or a website, or what's something that you would recommend to the audience that maybe help them shape their their thinking on this uh what what discipleship looks like yeah you know you know initially my gut thought was well what what are some resources that have been valuable to me and you know for a long time oswald chambers my utmost for his highest Hmm. uh has been a go-to but i think that's our gut response is like written word things or your your typical resources but i think really what stands out in my mind is and it goes back to what we talked about earlier. If we were designed for community, how can we seek those spaces? You know, I think I would encourage people to think about who they are and where they are in life and how they could find like-minded people where they can step into some openness and humility and honesty, right? Because... I think it's very common for us to have spaces in our lives where we can't be our authentic selves. We've got to put on a mask or we feel like we've got to diminish what we're going through. Somebody says, hey, what's wrong? And we're like, oh, I'm fine. Because maybe we don't know how to share what we're going through. So like the most uh, overt example of it would be support groups, right? If somebody's experiencing a very clear thing, whether it's, uh, you know, they're wrestling with, alcohol or addiction, right? There's Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous. And the beautiful thing about those spaces is someone can go into that space and be their authentic self because they know that the other people in that space get it. (laughs) And that's the culture that's there is this is a safe space to be yourself. But these kind of spaces can exist um, for any number of (laughs) you know, niche demographics that we're thinking of, right? And sometimes it might just be individual relationships, but that would be the resource I would encourage people to is think of and or pray for spaces in which you can be your authentic self to process life, 
to not have to have answers or put on a front, but just to just to be who God's created you to be as you're figuring out who God's created you to be. And and I want to emphasize too, like that can seem daunting, especially if you've been looking for that. And so I want to emphasize that element of prayer. Um, I, I do believe that God wants to create those spaces, but I also know sometimes it can be hard and sometimes it can feel like it's taking too long. And so I don't want to diminish that part of the struggle. But nonetheless, I think asking God, hey, God, I, I want to have these spaces where I can be myself. Because just as I shared with Darcy and Melinda, and as I've experienced in my own life, when I've had those moments where somebody is in a similar space, when Melinda heard Darcy's story and was like, oh my gosh, I resonate with that. You, there's, this, there's this depth of connection that just far outweighs most other connections we have. It's the type of thing where you don't even have to explain yourself because you know the other person already gets it, right? And there is something powerful in that space because there's this freedom in it to, again, not have to put on a front, not have to wear a mask, um, and to not have to have answers, to not have to have completed stories, to not have to be the best or to be fixed. Um, there's a freedom to be yourself, which at the end of the day is what God's invited us to as well. He invites us to come as we are. But so often we feel like, oh, I, I can't pray right now because I just sinned or I can't. I can't really serve God because I'm not spiritual enough or I don't even know where my Bible is. Like, No, God says, come as you are. Come as you are and then let's go from there. Let's build from there. But come as you are today because I already know you. (laughs) I already see you. And I actually know more of what you need and where you're heading than you do. Yeah, that's helpful, Paul. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, Where can people find out more about you and what you're doing, where you're writing? Yeah, so... Three and a half years ago, I unexpectedly lost my job and God invited me to create spaces to process who he is. And it's taken a few different forms. Uh, It started with the podcast, Where Did You See God?, which you can find wherever you listen to podcasts. And then the pandemic (laughs) opened an opportunity for me to start a website. And I started throwing other things on there, things that I've written, videos that I made. There is a devotional that I did not plan to write, uh, but felt like God was inviting me to on the book of Revelation, which I did not plan to read again (laughs) because it's a confusing, controversial book. Uh, But it's called uh, A Journey Through Revelation for the Person Who Doesn't Want to Read Revelation. And it's making it accessible, Um, not to tell you what Revelation means, but what it could mean for you today. And that's available for free. You can buy it on Amazon, but it's not about money. Uh, So somebody could get the free PDF there. But I share all that to say, the core of that is not to promote myself or boost myself or anything like that. It's, I feel like God's invited me to create space. And I know all of us need these types of spaces to process, to ask the hard questions, to wrestle through things. And so if anyone is in that space where they're wrestling through some hard stuff and trying to understand God, come on over to www.wherediyouseegod.com. See if anything uh, stands out, if anything gets your mind going. Uh, feel free to connect with me. Uh, but ultimately, I really do believe that, you know, God says, seek and you will find, um, whether it's at my site or someone else's or your podcast or some other podcast, God's not trying to hide from us. So if you're willing to seek him, um, he's happy to be found. Amen. That's a good word to end on. Paul Granger, thank you for joining us on the Stop and to Think podcast. I'm your host, Will Dole. Thank you for listening.